We pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, in Christ, we know that when you look upon us, we have the confidence to be able to say, we have done what is just and right. And so we ask that you would not leave us to our oppressors. Give your servants a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress us. Our eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteousness and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. You have kept that promise for us in Jesus and his death and his resurrection, and yet we hold on to that promise of him coming again. And we look forward to, to you fulfilling that promise for us as well. Deal with your servants according to your steadfast love and teach us your statutes. We are your servants. Give us understanding that we may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. And we ask, Lord, that you would be at work in this world to establish your righteous deeds in, in the lives of our, our homes, our families, our, our countries, our nations. And therefore, we love your commandments above gold, above any kind of, of worldly wealth. And therefore, we consider all your precepts to be right, and we hate every false way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I set a new record last week, I think. Um, I got the first one. And uh, Anna's like looking at me like, wait, one verse is all you got through? More or less, yeah. That's, that's pretty much exactly what happened last week. What's that? That, 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 that could happen, yeah. Um, all right, so we are on Romans chapter 5. We're still in verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 5 say, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access to access by faith into this grace in which we, are, in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So when I ended up last session, um, I, I said that our, our focus today was going to begin with the idea of hope and to think a little bit about what is hope. Now, we, we use this word in, in some different ways here. Um, you know, I, got, I have three examples there of, of how we might use this. I hope we have KFC for dinner. I hope I will have a good result on my tests. I hope in Christ's resurrection. Those aren't exactly the same thing, are they? You know, it's the same word, and, and unlike the word love, which I talked about, I think that was last week in the sermon, or maybe the week before, that you know, Greek has like eight different words for love. You know, we we have the word love, and you know, I love my wife, I love my kids, um, I love the Detroit Tigers. I love ham sandwiches. That really can't all be the same thing, right? Um, hope is kind of the same thing, same idea, except it's really just one word in both languages. You know, and it gets used in, in these kind of different ways. So if I say, I hope we have KFC for dinner, I'm, I'm talking about kind of a wish, right? It's kind of... Ambivalent. It might be something that I desire, but you know, not a big deal if it doesn't, you know, come about. Um, I hope uh, to have a, a good uh, result on my test. You know, this gets to be a little bit more serious depending upon you know what kind of test we're talking about, right? You know, it, this can be a really strong desire that that's part of our, our lives. You know, when we go in for medical tests, we, you know, we're like, I really hope that the result is good. I really desire that 
the outcome of this uh, uh, process is going to say that I'm at least to some degree healthy. But when we say, I hope in Christ's resurrection, that's not really a wish or a desire. It's really a statement of confidence in God's promises. It's, it's a different relationship to, the, to what we want. I mean, when we say we, we hope in uh, Christ's resurrection, we could wish for that day to come recognizing that we're just going to live the day as we face it. Uh, we could be talking about a desire that, you know, off in the future, um, you know, that, that Jesus is going to come again. But there are other times where this is just an absolute statement of confidence in God's promise. It's, it's clinging to what he has said to us. And one of the things that I find difficult sometimes is teasing apart the idea of hope and the idea of faith. I think that they can look awfully similar and they can operate in rather similar kind of ways. Um, the difference being that, in my mind anyhow, you know, faith is this gift that the Spirit gives that just receives what God is giving, whereas hope is that experience, that emotional experience of you know, God's going to give me a gift, and I'm, I'm confident it's going to come, but in the meantime, I'm living in this moment of whatever. You know, and so when we say to live with hope, um, sometimes when we say that people are, you know, yeah, 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 you know, good, good vibes, you know, positive thinking. Yeah. No, we're, we're actually saying, um, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is coming again. You know, when we live with hope, it is that one day God will keep his promise to judge the living and the dead and he will set all things right and he will welcome us into his presence through his grace and through his forgiveness and salvation. Um, a, a great statement of hope. Um, uh, Job. When, when Job is uh, going through just so much, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and yet in my flesh I shall see God. It's kind of one of these, you know, even, even if I die, even if everything else goes completely south, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that becomes that source of confidence that says, you know, I can keep going because, because God is going to do what he has promised to do. So if hope is this confidence in God keeping his promise, what is the hope of the glory of God? And to get at this, I'd like for us to look at John chapter 12. And if you would open up your Bibles or, you know, you can, if you have a paper Bible, great. If you have a digital Bible on your phone, that is, it's the same words either way. Um, might be a different translation, that's okay. That's, that can be helpful too. Um, I'll be using the, uh, the English Standard Version. Uh, but John chapter 12. Uh, it's gonna be one of those accounts that's really familiar to you, more than likely. Um, It is when Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. So, uh, this is right after. I wonder if I've got a typo here. Let me check something really quick here. Yeah, I'm in a great spot. So, Jesus raised um, Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. Uh, in the aftermath of that, Mary anoints Jesus, and then there's a plot to kill Lazarus. There's already a plot afoot to kill Jesus. Why would there be a plot to kill Lazarus? To hide what he did. What's that? To hide what he did. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you know, everybody's coming to believe because you know, this guy's raised from the dead. 
Then you have the triumphal entry. And uh, um, in the midst of the triumphal entry, you, got, you have these large crowds, and, and, and Jesus is, is coming in. They're waving the palm branches. They're crying out, Hosanna, this beautiful word um, that, that means God save us. And there's a prophecy that is recognized to be fulfilled from Zechariah, um, from Zephaniah, excuse me. Um, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And then in, in verse 16, it says, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that he had said these, that these things had been written about him and what had been done to him. When Jesus was glorified. That, that's what I want you to think about. When, when, when was Jesus glorified? You know, so you have this moment, he comes in, the disciples don't understand it. They're just kind of swept up in the moment. But when he is glorified, then they start to understand. Uh, it goes on uh, talking about uh, um, how he had called Lazarus from the tomb. You know, those Pharisees are upset. Verse 19, you see that we're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And then uh, some Gentiles, some Greeks come and they want to meet Jesus. And so uh, they go and they talk to Philip. Now, there's a reason they spoke to Philip. The name Philip is a Greek name. And so they're going to the one that, you know, they feel like they have the, the best connection with. Uh, the rest of them are, are Hebrew names. And so he goes and he talks to Philip, and Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay. Uh, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, is my Troubled, my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The people that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. When is Jesus glorified? On the cross. Now, if you were in a, um, like a non-denominational church or, you know, a, a different evangelical background, they, they might tell you that Jesus was glorified when he was raised from the dead. But Jesus is saying that he is glorified when he is lifted up on the cross. What was the purpose for Jesus being lifted up on the cross? To save us from our sins. The glory of God is wrapped up in him giving us forgiveness. It's him winning salvation for us. Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the resurrection doesn't matter because if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, the whole thing is, you know, is pointless. But I am saying that we like this, this pretty part of the picture. We like the part where Jesus wins, right? And, you know, and, and there's power, and, and, and we look for the kind of glory that is like, you know, the light bursting and there's darkness being scattered and, and, and all of these things. But God also hides his glory. He hides his victories. And so when Jesus 
you know, is on the cross and he's bleeding and, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is, his, this is God's glory. I'm not saying that I understand this completely, but I am saying that that is where he is saving us from sin and death. And that is God's desire as he works in your life, is to bring you forgiveness through faith in Jesus. So the centrality of the cross is the key to God's glory. If we're really going to understand what God's glory is all about, it's about him loving and saving sinners. Um, our uh, synodical president, uh, Matt Harrison, um, I, I don't always agree with, with everything that, that, that he stands on um, in terms of you know, how we conduct ourselves with each other. And, um, I think he's a good guy, and I think that he is doing a great job. Um, it's a difficult job. It's a difficult time. And um, just, like, uh, just like our politics, you know, there are fractures in our, our synod as well. And I think that he's really trying to navigate these things in, in a loving way. Um, but one of the things that I really, really do love about him is that when he preaches, he often comes back to this theme that Christ comes for sinners. That, that, that's what this whole thing is about. And I'll tell you one of the things I really do also really appreciate about Matt Harrison just in case he's listening, I just, sucking up here, it never hurts. Um, when he preaches to pastors, he preaches the law and the gospel to pastors. You know, this whole Christ comes for sinners, he would say Christ comes for you, pastor. You know, he is not mistaken about who we preachers are. Um, and uh, proclaims that gospel to us. But this is something that I think gets lost in, in a lot of American religion. That it becomes about, you know, my performance, the things that I do. That the glory of God is about, you know, our, our triumph over the world, our, our setting up of a just society. Now, did I say that it is bad to have a just society? No, I think that we are blessed here in America to have a strong voice in our political structures. But at the end of the day, even if our government were to completely fall and persecution come on the church, Christ still comes for sinners. And the proclamation of the cross still brings life and salvation to people. And as I'm thinking about this, this, this picture of, of, of glory and, uh, and, and the darkness of, of our lives and the brokenness of sin and, and, and God overcoming those things, uh, the, the poem uh, by John Donne uh, comes to mind. Uh, John Donne is one of my favorite poets. And uh, this is one that I'm guessing that you may have read maybe when you were in high school. Uh, but uh, John Donne, uh, he was a priest, and uh, um, he, he ran afoul the, uh, the political powers of the time, and uh, he's far than, uh, a far from perfect individual. But he put together some really beautiful meditations on God's salvation. And I think this is one of them. And I think that this is a picture of hope and glory brought together. It goes like this. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, but yet canst thou kill, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure then from thee must much more must flow. And soonest our best men with thee do go. Rest of their bones and soul's delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dust with poison 
war and sickness dwell. And poppy and charms can make us sleep as well. And better than thy stroke, why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, and we wake eternally. And death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. You know, I've been, I've been watching the world over the last year, and uh, I remember uh, talking about evangelism with people years ago, and, and people telling me the, the message that you will die, it, it, it doesn't resonate in this world anymore. Yeah. People aren't afraid of death anymore, I was told. Well, I think 2020 proved that to be baloney. I think people still are afraid of death. But I think from what I'm reading here is that it is the glory of God that when we face death, that Jesus has already faced it for us. He has borne that burden for us. So that when we look at death, we're like, it's sleep. Most of us are not afraid to go to bed at night. I personally look forward to it. Is it time yet? You know, it, it is rest. It is refreshment. And, and what Dunn is saying here in this, this poem is death is that last thing in this world before we enter into the next. That death is defeated. That there's something beyond death. That death has been overthrown. And when we really, when we trust Jesus in terms of, you know, he has actually overthrown death for us. That can help us to look at the things that go on in our lives with hope. That we have experienced God's glory, not as one who is foreign and, and, and is up on the top of the mountain in fire and smoke, and when he speaks, we tremble. But we have experienced his glory in his Son. A veiled glory, a hidden glory, that as he walks through this world loving sinners, he bears our sin to the cross and dies so that we may live. And that, of course, leads to his resurrection. And we look forward to a day when he comes again and all is set right. And maybe that is a glory that we're more used to thinking of in terms of you know, light and newness and, and holiness and perfect um, perfection and all of those types of things. But without this hidden glory in the cross, we don't get to experience the other. You cannot have resurrection from the dead without death. And death ultimately is defeated by Christ dying for us. And his glory is that he sets his glory aside to bear our shame and to take it upon himself so that we then could become bearers of his glory. I'm always tempted in a moment like that to say, does this make sense? And I don't know that it does. You know, what, what I'm trying to say is, have you understood what I'm saying? I mean, have I been clear? But does this make sense? I think that this is one of those moments where we say, can I believe this? Can I hold on to this promise? that Jesus has shown me, that he has saved me. Because this is difficult stuff. Because as we're hoping in this glory of a crucified savior, the next thing he says in verse three is that we're going to rejoice, or we're going to boast in our suffering. That is not how our world works. Well, I mean, sometimes we kind of use suffering in a kind of manipulative way when we boast it. You know, 
Oh, all the things I've done for you. And you couldn't just do this one. Let me give you the list of everything. But for the most part, we're, we're not too thrilled with suffering. And when it says we, we rejoice or we boast in our suffering, um, that word suffering, it, it can mean tribulation or affliction. Anybody here volunteering to be afflicted? Um, in our troubles? Why do we suffer? Why do we have tribulation and affliction and trouble in our lives? Well, as Christians, they're, they're, we could talk about persecution. That, that does happen. Uh, I told the story a few weeks ago about an Iranian Christian um, who uh, was beaten uh, with a rod because, uh, well, first of all, he um, converted from Islam and then he attended a worship service and received the Lord's Supper. And uh, so he was beaten with a rod uh, because of that. And, uh, you know, I, that seems like a pretty impressive, uh, you know, don't do that again. Uh, but then uh, he, he did. Uh, you know, he wanted to receive the Lord's Supper again. And so he went to church and he got caught and he got beaten with a rod again. He's like, worth it. We rejoice in our afflictions. We rejoice in our suffering. Persecution can definitely be part of this. Um, but we also sometimes suffer when we're wrestling with our sin. We have this reality in our lives that Paul is going to talk about more explicitly in chapter 7, um, if and when we get there. Uh, but... Uh, um, that we are at the same time saint and sinner. And so even though our sins are forgiven, we, we can feel this, this struggle that's within us, that, that Paul says, the good I would, I don't, and that which I wouldn't, I do. You know, maybe you've experienced that in your life where you're just like, I wish I'd just not do this anymore. And that can, that can be a kind of struggle, a kind of suffering in, in our lives. Pastor? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's actually my next point. Why do you miss that? Yeah. You know, and it's like one thing after the other. Yeah. And then you think, well, God's probably trying to teach me something here for something down the road. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that it's might not... Because of sin. It could be sin. I don't know. I don't always think my struggles are from sin, but... Could be both. Pardon me? It could be both. That in your sin, God is teaching you something. It could be connected. Um, but but this, this is one of the thoughts that um, a lot of people will run away from. That sometimes we suffer because God brings suffering into our lives. You know, um, Psalm 51 Verse 8 and uh, in Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, uh, says that God disciplines those he loves. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up and I experienced discipline from my parents, we're not talking about, you know, going to Disneyland here. Those were difficult times. Sometimes they hurt. And they definitely weren't fun. They usually involved extra work. They were supposed to hurt. Yeah. Um, and sometimes God brings these things into our lives um, to discipline us, to, to make us aware of what's going on in our hearts and in our minds. Um, sometimes we experience uh, uh, suffering from God uh, because of our rebellion. Uh, in Acts chapter 26, uh, verse 14. We can read. Yeah, 
And when we had fallen to the when he had when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice say to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Do you know what that means? So a goat is a stick that you know farmers use to prod animals along. It usually has a little point on it, just enough to get their attention. It's not like you know, like bullfighting where they're like trying to get a spear into them or anything. It's just a little little poke, you know, to move in the right direction. And God is literally saying to Saul, who we now know as Paul, um, what you're doing when I poke you to move in the right direction is pushing back. You know, you're like, he's going to poke me now, so I'm going to lean into that. Well, yeah, that's going to cause some suffering in your lives. James chapter 4 is also interesting in terms of uh, why we suffer. Um, it doesn't use actually the word suffering, um, but, uh, but the idea is there behind it. So James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Those aren't fun, right? Quarrels and fights. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So sometimes, you know, the Lord your God is a jealous God, right? And when we are drifting, when we are moving in directions that, you know, are bringing sin into our lives, God intervenes. And sometimes, sometimes our suffering is for his glory. Pastor, could idolatry be in that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, in, in fact, I think that that is part of the story of Job, that these friends of his that come, they all have this incredible wisdom that they understand exactly why Job is suffering. And really what they're doing is they're looking at wrong windows into his life. You know, there's a different authority that's at work in, in each of their worldviews. And, uh, and in the end, um, you know, God speaks to Job from the whirlwind and, uh, and he says to him, now answer me. And Job says, I put my hand over my mouth, which is roughly the Hebrew translation of, I think I'll shut up now. I'm, not, I'm done talking. You know, I, you know, God put him through the ringer. And in the end, what was the result? His friends are converted to faith. In the end, we have this amazing picture of, of God's glory and power, his majesty, his might, and all of these things. I went to a conference um, some time ago um, we, we have a, a really neat ministry here, uh, Rejoicing Spirits, and uh, uh, people with, who are born with developmental delays. And uh, this was a, a concert, you know, type of gig that the, uh, the, the radio station The Fish put on. And there was a mom there who was born, her, whose child was born with some really severe developmental delays. And so the question is always, why? Why me? Why my child? You know, what? what? And... She, as she walked through this with faith, trusting that God was at work and that he was you know, loving them and, and um, working in their lives, all of a sudden she finds herself dealing with other moms and families who are struggling and suffering in the exact same way. My kids are all healthy. It's one thing for me to say, you know, you know, God's at work in your life. He loves you, and he is going to work 
through you in, in this child's life. It is another thing altogether if you have walked that experience to look at somebody who's in the same place and say, it's going to be okay. The Lord is with you. He still loves you. It's a different thing. Um, you know, in my ministry, I can tell you that when I deal with people who have lost a parent, that my ministry is different now because my dad died than it was before. God uses suffering to teach us, to shape us, to equip us. And you know, we tend to think that the worst thing that could happen to a person is that they die, or that they suffer, or that they struggle. But that's not actually the worst that can happen to you. The worst is that you could be separated from God's love, and even separated into eternity. And bearing some of the suffering, then it, it, God shapes us in those things. A lot of times people say, why me? Yeah. And my mother's answer to that was, why not me? Right. Yeah, I find myself doing that sometimes. Why me, God? And then I kind of have to pause. I'm like, actually, if we're going to go there, it probably ought to be worse. So... <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Well, I think when we live through things that are difficult and we continue to speak our faith, that that opens some doors. You know that people will listen differently. Um, you know the word is still what's going to create faith in people. Um, I, I always, I'm always weary. Um, there's a popular saying right right now. It's been around for decades. You know, supposedly St. Francis, you know, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. <laughs> words are necessary to share the gospel. It's just plain and simple. It is necessary. Um, but when that can be tied to the witness of your life, um, you know, our lives proclaim a message as well. You know, so... Um, Martin Luther used to uh, uh, say that there are, are three things that form uh, a, uh, a theologian, and we are all theologians of, of some stripe or another. And he would say the th three things that form us as theologians are prayer, meditation on the word, and suffering. That God works in these things to you know, shape us and to form us. Um, love for others can bring suffering into our lives. Love often leads to suffering. You know, we worry about our kids um, when they go through different difficult times. We hurt, right? Um, it, so sometimes love can actually, you know, all we need is love. <laughs> and you know, and, and you know, the, the whole message in this world is, you know, that you know, everything is about love. And, you know, and love is then tolerance, acceptance, and all of these things. But love will often bring suffering into your lives because you want the best for these people. Um, evil will bring suffering into our lives. Evil is real. It's part of our existence in this world. Um, and I like the way that Luther talks about this in the, uh, his explanation to the seventh petition of the Lord's Prayer. He says, we pray in this petition, but deliver us from evil, uh, that our Father in heaven would rescue us from every evil of body and soul, that should be soul, sorry about that, possessions and reputation, and finally, when our last hour comes, give us a blessed end and graciously take us from this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven. This image of this world being a valley of sorrow or a valley of tears, um, that, that, that's, that's part of our reality. You know, it, that's not to say that there isn't good in the world or, or that there aren't things that are, are wonderful in our experience of, of this world. God made it, after all. 
but it is tainted. And evil is real, and we need to be delivered by delivered from it. So, how do we feel about evil? Or how do we feel about suffering? I'd rather not. Exactly. You know, so many of our problems in this life, however, come because we shun suffering. You know, even discomfort. Um, a part of my job as a, a, a pastor in, in a church is I have this, this supervisory function. And over the years, I've had to confront employees within the system. I hate doing that. I, I'd much rather be, you know, your sins are forgiven, folks. But you know what? Over the years, I've experienced that if I don't lean into the suffering of having to confront somebody, it ain't going to get better. A lot of times, the troubles that we experience in, the, in this life, the suffering that we experience is because we didn't lean into it when it was small. You know, and that's just, that's just a pragmatic type of a thing. But we don't always trust that God can work through suffering. We don't always trust that he can redeem our suffering. You know, so often people will compromise their faith because they're afraid of suffering. I don't want to make you feel bad. Right. I feel bad because I made you feel bad. And, oh. you know, and, and it can be worse than that. Um, when the Romans were, were persecuting the church, um, they would say, you know, if you will give this offering, um, this sacrifice to Caesar and, and, and say this prayer, uh, we'll, we'll let you go. And some Christians were like, sweet, I will take that option so that I don't have to. And others said, no, I'm standing strong in my faith and I will suffer all, even death, you know, rather than compromise in any kind of way. Well, the persecution died. And then you have people who suffered, who were maimed, or scars because they experienced real suffering. And then you have this other group of Christians over here who believe that Jesus died to pay for their sins, but they didn't bear the suffering and they didn't have the scars. They didn't lose their family members and all of those things. How do you think the group that endured the suffering felt about the other? Yeah, and there was actually a huge debate within the church whether or not these people uh, who offered the sacrifice to get out of the problem, whether or not they could actually be forgiven. Of course, the answer is yes, they can be. Christ died for all sins, including those ones. But boy, oh boy, there were bitter, bitter feelings and God used the suffering of these people in amazing ways to convert their jailers, to, to draw people to Jesus. But he also used the people who didn't suffer in those ways to proclaim his grace and his forgiveness. Um, we often prefer the comforts of the penultimate to the promises of the ultimate. And I think this is hard because how do, you, how, how do you imagine heaven when this is all you've ever experienced? It, it, it's, it, it's hard to say, you know, I'm ready to give up on this. When I'm not completely 100% sure what that is. You know, I haven't experienced complete holiness. I haven't experienced, you know, the, the, the total love of God. Uh, all of those things that are promised that will come. 
But I can tell you, being hugged by my kids feels really good. I can tell you, I love my wife. I can tell you that when I make pizza on Sunday nights, it's good stuff. And there are these pleasures in this world, and we know them, don't we? They're good gifts, actually, aren't they? But they're penultimate. They will, well, as Jesus says, you know, these are things that will rust and they will decay. But this is the stuff that's eternal. It, it, it's a hard struggle for us. This is something that we're going to prefer only by faith. Looking ahead to, to what God has promised, to trusting those promises in Jesus. So suffering produces, it, it brings about, uh, it makes endurance. And when we say endurance, I, I mean it makes perseverance, it makes fortitude, it, it helps us to wait patiently. Um, a couple years ago, I, I, I ran a marathon, and uh, uh, the training for a marathon, um, depending upon where you're at uh, in your, your regular running, takes about six months. The first runs are easy. You know, if, you, if, you, you know, if you've got your base built up. You know, I've run several half marathons, so I'm really comfortable well, right now, I, I, I would have a hard time over eight miles. But uh, uh, when I'm, when I'm you know, really training and everything, um, I'm really comfortable somewhere around that 13, 14 miles. You know, I'm tired afterwards, but you know, I felt like I did something good. When I ran 20 miles for the first time, I hurt so badly. And like the next day, I slept for so long. But that's the process, it's about building up your endurance, right? And I think that there's a, a good parallel there for us in terms of living the Christian life. That the sufferings of this life, it produces endurance. That we can keep going. And I think that one of the things that we have to kind of keep in focus is that God plays the long game. You know, we want the, the, the quick conversions and, you know, and, and everything comes quick and easy. Uh, St. Monica prayed for her son, uh, St. Augustine, uh, for like 30 years before he came back to the faith. That's what I'm talking about that God plays the long game. He, he, he works in your life and in my life the whole time through to get us to where he eventually wants us to be. And I think that sometimes when we you know, are dealing with other people and we're trying to share the gospel with them, we're like, okay, how do I get to the point where if, he's really, if God has really put you in a relationship with this person, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he's not playing the long game. You know, that this is something that's going to take time. With you loving that person, caring for them, and being a slow, consistent witness. I'm going to bust through verse 4 really quickly here. Endurance produces character. Um, character in the, the Greek, this word, it mean, it's related to judgment. It means having the quality of having stood the test of time, being mature. Um, and then character produces hope. Notice how we started with hope and then we worked our way back to hope. Um, you know, so uh, suffering uh, produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character takes us back to hope. And a beautiful, beautiful picture of of that whole process can be seen in Joseph. Not the carpenter, the, the patriarch back in Genesis. So in, in Genesis 37 through 50, and I encourage you to take a look more closely at this, 
He's living there with his family. Everything is good in Joseph's life. He is the favorite. He is pampered. Remember, he got that special coat, uh, the Technicolor dream coat. Uh, but he's actually kind of tactless, as you know, evidenced by the way that he treats his brothers, talking about the dreams and stuff. Um, he is sold into slavery by his brothers, where he succeeds. He does quite well, actually, in slavery because of his work ethic, his dependability. Um, but uh, Potiphar's wife thought he was pretty good looking, but he refused to commit adultery with her. But she falsely accuses him, and he's sent to prison. Just, I mean, just think about experiencing all this. I mean, it's like, you know, slam after slam after slam. And he's just on this downward trajectory. But he keeps persevering. He keeps enduring. Um, and even in prison, he succeeds. He, he eventually ends up interpreting dreams for Pharaoh's butler and baker. The baker doesn't matter because he's about to be executed, but the butler takes the word eventually, years later, to Pharaoh. And Joseph then interprets Pharaoh's dream. And then he is appointed second in command over all of Egypt. I mean, it's that type of a, of a rise. Uh, just, it, it, it's rags to riches. And then the dream comes true. And the famine happens. The brothers come to get food and he tests them. And it all works to forgiveness. In fact, even after um, their father died, they're still afraid that Joseph is going to try to take revenge. And he basically says, you know, God was at work in this. You know, behind all my suffering, he was at work in all of it. So he has this thread of, of hope that's, that's all throughout his life. And in the very end, when he's dying, he says to his descendants, bury my bones back in the promised land. There will be a time to go back. Take me with you. He's looking ahead to what God has promised, even after his death. Next week, I'll, I'll do verse 5, I guess. And hopefully a little bit more. I was actually hoping to get to verse 5 because it's the first mention of the Holy Spirit in today's Pentecost, but uh, we'll, we'll get it next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us hope. And um, as, as weird as it may feel for us to say, uh, we, we thank you for the sufferings that bring endurance and the endurance that brings character and the character that produces hope, that you are working these things in our lives. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would continue to be at work in us, to shape us and form us uh, as your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Do we... Is this the first time we're going to pay for I, I think so. We have a lot of dozen people coming in. Well, we want to leave the tables. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean... Yeah. I think, I think that's fine. Yeah. Yeah.